The final part of our Romans 12 series today, we're going to end uh, through verse 17 through 21, and uh, we're actually going to end where we started several weeks back now in verse 1 and 2, after 11 chapters of, uh, of gospel instruction, if you like, Romans 12 is all about gospel application, one of the consequences of the gospel, what it is to live by grace is that what you must do always grows out of what God has done. Let's look at verse one. I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the key thing here, the mercies of God. What God has done for us is the motivation, is the, is the drive, is the fuel, if you like, for what we now do. In view of God's mercy to you, what he has done, that contribution that came this morning, he has redeemed us. We have redemption now through his blood, the, the forgiveness of sins, the Bible tells us, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. By his mercy, he has redeemed us. Redemption is now ours. Redemption is a kind of big theological word which you think, well, what's that mean? Well, actually, to redeem is a word we use all the time in current kind of culture and climate. If you're a sports fan and a goalkeeper makes a massive mistake and lets in a couple of goals and then later saves three penalties in the penalty shootout, you say he has redeemed his mistake. He's redeemed himself. Or redemption, redeeming is kind of that thing of you have a voucher or or on an app probably these days and you say, I want to give you that. In ex- I want to redeem this in exchange for that. There's something of value that I want and I want to redeem it. So I give you this in exchange for that. Or we talk about having kind of a, a, a debt. You have a big debt that you can't pay and then someone pays it. They've redeemed the debt. That's what redemption is. God has redeemed us. We made a massive mistake that we couldn't rectify, but he did. He rectified the mistake. We have this massive debt that we could never pay, but he paid it and he paid it in full. He has this incredible exchange. He chose us. The Bible says before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He, he gave his son, he redeemed his, in order to redeem us back to him. This thing of redemption is incredible. In view of God's mercy, this redemption we now have, now we live like this. Not some heavy legalistic, you must do this, but it's like, wow, look what God has done. How gracious, how incredibly kind, how incredibly merciful in forgiving he's been. Now as a result of that, I am going to give myself. God has changed everything. And so now I'm not gonna live like that. I'm gonna live like this. Individually, 
and in community as family. So when we say here, this is a phrase you've been hearing over many, many months now, when we say here we exist to make disciples, family members, and missionaries of all nations to the glory of God, what we really mean is we, the redeemed, those who have been set apart, have been saved, who've been forgiven, who have been graced by God, we, the redeemed, are now going to live not in the way that the world does, We're not going to behave like the world, but because of the mercies of God, we're going to act very, very differently. We're we're going to be shaped by the word of God, not the world in which we live. We're going to be a countercultural community of people who act differently in such a way that people notice. So in a world that prioritizes self and looking after number one, we're going to prioritize the least, the last, and the lost. In a world of consumerism where it really, it's all about me and my needs and my wants, we believe in community, and so we're going to prioritize orienting our lives around helping others thrive and grow. In a world that's divisive and, and puts up barriers, we're going to prioritize making room for different voices, people building life with people not like us. In a world that is skeptical and cynical and distrusting and disbelieving and scheming and lacking in any real faith, we believe God's at work. And so we're going to look for where God is working and we're going to change things in order to join him. And in a world that's kind of always in a rush, that is impatient all the time, we're not in a rush. In God's time, and we're going to pray, we're going to wait, we're going to weigh what he says, and we're going to respond. We act differently, shaped by the gospel to the glory of God for the sake of others. And that's exactly what Paul writes in these verses. God's done drives and motivates and fuels our do, and it makes a difference in how we now live our lives. Don't forget that underpinning all of this stuff, the moment you became a Christian, the split second you became a Christian, you were added to a body, his body, the people of God. And now this body of Christ, this the local church, this body of Christ is now continuing the work of Jesus on earth until death takes us or Jesus returns. We're part of God's plan, the church. Ephesians 3.10 tells us that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. It's through his body, through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the extravagance of God, the generosity of God, through his body is now being made known, through you and I. And that's exactly what happened in the early, early church. A countercultural community in the midst of Roman culture transformed and changed things to such an extent that people noticed. So Emperor Julian, who was a pagan in uh, AD 330, he wrote that it was disgraceful. he's, He's not a Christian. He says it's disgraceful that these impious Galileans, he means Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people, the pagans, lack aid from us, but not so from them. He was a pagan emperor, and he said it's disgraceful that these Christians behave better towards our people than we do ourselves. When people take seriously and act in view of the mercies of God, everything changes. Dionysus of Alexandria in 260 AD, there was a massive plague that had just happened, and he he writes this, he says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Contrary to how others behaved, 
Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with this, they, some of them departed this life serenely happy. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this manner. A countercultural community when everybody else kind of went, we're going that way. They said, no, we're running towards this. We're going to demonstrate. We're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. This is the kind of community we want to be, right? One who is countercultural, loving, caring, demonstrating, displaying the wisdom of God on display. Let's read these last few verses of Romans 12 because it really is very countercultural. I want to pick up in verse 14 here. It's really easy to forget sometimes that Paul is actually writing to very normal people who experienced all sorts of the same sort of things that we experience in life. And we've got to remember that for the church in Rome to whom this letter was written, their life was not easier than ours. The church in Rome experienced all the conflicts and hardships and difficulties that we in 21st century Britain face and a whole lot more. They lived in a very hierarchical society. They all sorts of different standards of justice and injustice, lots of unfair treatment, lots of discrimination, all sorts of terrible things. We also know that persecution in Rome was picking up. It culminated in the beheading of Paul and the murder, the feeding of the lions to some of the people who actually received this letter originally. Life in Roman times, for the church in Rome, when this was written, was not straightforward and simple. This was written to normal people. This is not unobtainable stuff. This is the behavior of those who have grasped the mercies of God. Pick it up in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. With one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Just pause there for a moment. How do you respond when people treat you unfairly? Uh, let's be clear, there's a spectrum here that, uh, of what Paul's talking about. There's people perhaps at this end of the spectrum who just don't like you. They're not very nice to you for whatever reason. There are people here who have done something against you. They have wronged you. And on the other end of the scale, there are people who actively persecute in the most horrendous way possible. So there's this huge spectrum that Paul is kind of referencing here and talking about. But the question is, Wherever you fit on that, how do you respond when that happens? What is our response supposed to be when people treat us unfairly? Now, if you're a Christian here today, even if you're not, to be honest, you know what you're supposed to say, right? You know what kind of the Christian response is supposed to be. And yet so often, if we're being really, really honest, the reality is that there is like this kind of almost this involuntary kind of heart human instinct response when somebody wrongs you in some way. Again, it's entirely on a spectrum, but the human heart has this kind of like bias or instinct for retaliation. 
Now we might not want to admit that. We might not want to even use that language, but we've all kind of, that's the, inst- someone does something and there's like a, a, a default instinct to retaliate there. It's this fleshly but natural reaction. I'm going to just publicly confess for a moment. Um, I'm a very good driver, all right? I'm not, not, not going to lie. I'm a very good driver. I've been driving for over 20 years, never had an accident. I only got done once for speeding. It was a faulty camera, but... <laughs> But there is, so I, I'm like one of the good people on the road, all right? I'm just, I, like, you don't need, the gospel frees us from any self-pretense, so I can, I can say that without being big-headed about it. I'm a good driver. Other people on the road, however, not so much. And there is something in me that genuinely is something in me that when someone wrongs me on the road, and that doesn't have to be much. I mean, that can be the person who tootles down the middle lane at 65. I'm like, get out of the way! Or worse still, the person who kind of cuts me up or does something wrong or, or, or just even so much as won't let me out. Oh man, there is something that just comes up. Some of you look absolutely horrified, like why is this guy allowed to preach? And some of you, <laughs> that's another question, right? That's got nothing to do with it. But some of you are like, I know exactly what he means. <laughs> some of you are free enough to admit it because you know the gospel too. And some of you, yeah, you've got pride issues, you get over those, right? But the reality is there is something instinctively in me that just is, I hope they crash when they go around the corner. <laughs> Did he say that out loud? I'm only saying what lots of you think, right? <laughs> it's ugly and it's there and I suddenly have this moment of catch myself and think, no, I don't mean that. I repent of that. I'm really sorry. Like all joking aside for a moment, that like left unchecked, that natural fleshly instinct to retaliate when you are wronged, that runs deep. There's a German poet, Heinrich Heine, who said, one must, it's true, forgive one's enemies, but not before they've been hanged. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I'll I'll forgive anyone, anything, once I've killed them. And this kind of, again, like all joking aside for a moment, just push deeper into that for just a moment. We, We know we shouldn't, But left to our own devices, left to its own device, the human heart, that's the way it works, right? In a fleshly sense. It's like this battle inside you between forgiveness and retaliation. And that battle is literally how Paul describes it. Look at verse 21 with me. We'll just finish it off now. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that word, overcome, in Greek, that is a military term. It's like about, it's a word that means conquer or defeat. Paul is saying here there's this battlefront going on in our hearts that we need to overcome. We need to win. We need to fight. We need to conquer. We need to defeat the natural with good. Because if we repay evil with evil, and let's just be clear here in a moment, I don't want to call it, that, that default response to retaliate, that's evil. Like that just fuels more evil. If we want to repay evil with evil, whether that's an external action, like I would never actually chase somebody down and ram them off the road. I, I just would never do that. But internally, there's something in me that hopes someone else would. All right? There is a kind of, whether repaying that evil with evil, whether external or internal, well, in the end, evil wins every time, and we lose. It's victory or defeat, that's the choice. And if you don't overcome, if you don't defeat, you'll stay in anger. You'll stay in retaliation mode. 
you'll stay in, or you'll just be bitter about things. And that does a lot of damage, right? Firstly, it damages your relationships with other people. Just think of it this way for a moment. If, if someone from the opposite sex, or from another race, or from another group, or whatever it is of people does something to you, wrongs you in some way, and you don't deal with it, it affects your relationship with everybody else from that group of people. Because you always view it through that lens from now on. Oh, they're, the, they're the people who did that. Got to deal with it. Distorts your relationships with others if you don't. But it harms you too. You know that, right? It doesn't just harm your relationship to others. It harms you too. Anne Lamott says, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But let's just push that deeper for a moment. Because forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel, right? So therefore, lack of forgiveness or unforgiveness, does that bring you closer to the gospel or does it push you further away? Or just to look at it another way for a moment, where does evil, where does conflict come from? What's wrong with the world? There's a quote credited to G.K. Chesterton, which I think is apocryphal probably, I don't think he said it, but who in answer to a newspaper's question, what is wrong with the world, he wrote in with a simple answer, dear sirs, I am. Now whether he said it or not is irrelevant, it's true. What's wrong with the world? I am. Just very practically, Tim Keller says this, at the heart and the root of all sin and brokenness, which leads to conflict and evil, is either self-centeredness, or self-righteousness. Self-centeredness is basically saying I'm more important than anybody else. And self-righteousness is saying I'm better than that person. I'm better than anyone else. Now we might not say it as explicitly as this, but that's the essence of it. That's where conflict comes from. Me first, I'm not wrong, they are. Or I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't behave like them, so therefore I'm better than them. But the whole point of the gospel is that it destroys self-centeredness. It destroys self-righteousness. I'm no better, I'm no worse than anyone else. I'm no more important. So if I nurse my hurt and massage my self-ego and all that kind of stuff, if I stay bitter, if I stay angry, if I stay in retaliation mode, if I don't overcome the evil, what does that do? It only increases the self-righteousness, doesn't it? or it increases the self-centeredness. It doesn't move me towards the gospel, it moves me away from the gospel and it harms me. Harms my relationship with other people, it harms me, but it also harms the, person, the other person in this situation as well. Retaliating, getting revenge, it just doesn't make them say, oh, I've seen the error of my ways, now you've attacked me, I will change. That just never happens, it just continues, reinforces the behavior and continues the cycle and ultimately evil wins. And yet the idea of evil winning is completely contrary to the gospel, right? To the big story of God. The biblical principle, the biblical idea is that good overcomes, good conquers, good defeats evil. We see that on the grand sweeping scale of the biblical story. In the end, whatever else is true of history, what this is, Jesus wins. 
On the cross, he overcame. He conquered the forces of sin, Satan, and death. And so Jesus wins. Evil is overcome. And so that big, grand, sweeping evil is overcome is supposed to work itself out in the smaller skirmishes of our lives too. You see, our lives collectively but individually as well are supposed to picture something of the gospel story. So when people look at our lives, whether they realize it or not, they are seeing something in small form of something big that is true. And that's really easy to say, right? Until this stuff hits the road of our lives. And then it's really put to the test. Are we shaped by the world in which we live or are we shaped by the word of God? And the gospel is so utterly countercultural. I can, honestly, I can think of barely anything, barely anything in, the, in life where a gospel response looks anything like a worldly response. Normally, whatever the world thinks, the gospel, will think, gospel response is like completely the opposite. This is a battlefront. Depending where we find ourselves in the spectrum, from people who don't just like us, to people who have wronged us, to people who persecute and abuse us, at some point you'll be there somewhere on this spectrum. And when we do, we need to have a countercultural gospel response. We need to conquer evil with good. So how do we do that? It's very briefly, four things. So I just, I just want to pray because some of what I'm about to share I think is potentially very, very deeply personal for some of us. It's going to require that we do something as a consequence. Just believe the Holy Spirit want to just come right now. Holy Spirit, just thank you for your presence. Thank you for your presence. Just as you were ministering to us in worship, that incredible reminder of the truth of the Father who comes running the Father's heart towards us, the incredible love you have for us. Out of that love, you call us to deal with some stuff. And if in these next few moments, Holy Spirit, you just bring up some stuff in our lives, just that tender love, the power to overcome, help us be changed, be more like you. Thank you, you don't leave us in place of anger or bitterness. But you lovingly, tenderly call us out of it to a place of freedom and peace. Pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we conquer evil with good? Well, four things. The first, look at verse 18 with me. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. So the first thing we do is something actually we don't do. We don't cut and run. We don't cut and run. There's a caveat that we'll come to in a moment where sometimes it's entirely appropriate to cut and run. But many people, the way that they handle difficulty or someone wronging them or something like that in some way, shape or form is just to cut them out. Avoid them, leave the group, withdraw, cancel, don't return any calls anymore, back off, avoid, leave church, whatever it might be, just, nope. That is not a gospel response. That is a worldly response. It's a response that's deeply ingrained in our culture. Cancel people, cut them out, don't hang out with them. It's not biblical. This whole passage is about pursuing relationship, overcoming evil in another with your acts of good. 
And so as far as it depends on us, we, we try and we stay and we try and pursue. They might not want that. You can't control that. But as far as it depends on you, the gospel response is to love people as we've been loved. It doesn't mean you have to be best friends forever with somebody who you just really struggle to relate to, but the best, as best you can, you stay and you love someone. That's the gospel, to love people who so often make, it, make themselves difficult to love. Verse 14 tells us to bless people. In this context, it very probably means to pray for them. And even if it doesn't, that's literally what Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? He says, uh, says the same thing, pray for those who persecute you. It's really very hard to hate someone who you pray for. So we stay and we pray. We don't cut and run. We bless, we pray. But here's the caveat. Now please hear very, very carefully what I'm about to say. None of this means that you have to stay or should stay in an abusive relationship or not report someone who is exploiting you or taking criminal advantage of you. It is, let me be very clear, it is not a Christian response to say there is never a situation where you can or you can't or shouldn't leave or report. Let me just be very clear on that. Verse 18 says, if possible, which clearly means sometimes it is not possible. Again, hear me very clearly. It is not God's will or God's intention for you to remain in an unsafe or abusive situation or a situation where you are being exploited. Earlier in this passage, verse nine says, abhor, hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Staying in a relationship or a context where abuse or exploitation is happening does not help you hold on to good or hate what is evil. So we speak. That can be very hard, I know that. But we, can, we speak out. There are bodies and there are agencies and authorities who can help. And we can help here in this church in pointing in that direction and walking with people out of such situations. Romans 13 follows Romans 12. And Romans 13 outlines the role of civil authorities in facilitating appropriate justice. Biblically, they are God's instrument for justice and peace. And so in cases of exploitation or abuse, they are there to help. And so are we. The first principle in overcoming evil is if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. But sometimes that is not possible and is not the right thing to do. The point is here, in both situations, is to act. Step in towards people or step out if that's appropriate. The point is we do what is needed to overcome evil. So the first thing, is that we need to act as far as we can, act at peace with all. Second thing, we remember the gospel. Look at verse 17 with me. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What's that mean? It means there is a judge, one judge, and it ain't me, and it ain't you, and it ain't any of us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Paul's directly quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. God says it, 
and God means it. God will bring into account every sin that is ever committed. No sin will ever be undealt with. Every single one, he says, every single sin committed will be paid for, either by the person ultimately in hell or by Jesus on the cross. Thus, your vengeance against evil is just not required. Now, let's be clear again. This does not mean that earthly justice doesn't matter. It quite clearly does. It's just what I said a moment ago. It's what Romans 13 is all about. God has appointed appropriate authorities as his instrument for justice on earth. It doesn't mean that their justice is perfect, not even close. And sadly, oftentimes it's not even just. It doesn't mean that their judgment is final either because quite clearly it is not. It's just that government and appropriate authorities in that sense is one of his gifts to mankind to keep the peace and reveal himself. And so when they execute justice, even if they're not Christians, there's a sense in which they're representing him. It's why justice and a justice system really does, that is just, really does matter and is important. It's why when governments and authorities and everyone else and systems and all that kind of stuff act in unjust manners, we have a responsibility to speak out and challenge it. But that's another topic for another day. But here's the point. Romans 13 is about the government. Romans 12 is about us but it does have some practical implications for us. The first practical implication of this is that we don't look to take personal justice. We are not judge and jury, and we're definitely not executioner. We don't look to take personal justice. And secondly, when we look to the courts or governing authorities or whatever to restore justice, which where appropriate we should, we do so with love, and we do so with a desire for restoration in our hearts to those who have wronged us. And so we forgive, always. We forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. If there's ever a phrase that's easy to say and hard to do, that is it, right? We forgive, always. As God has forgiven us in Christ, we forgive. That's hard, of course it is. But what a beautiful display of the gospel is when it happens. So many stories of Christians who've done this. You can just, just go and Google it if you can't think of any. But I just was reminded of a story from not so long ago of a, uh, of a police officer in the United States who shot dead an innocent man. Shot dead a guy called Botham Jean. He was completely innocent. He literally did nothing wrong. He was in his own apartment when this police officer entered the wrong apartment and shot him dead. And she was tried and quite rightly found guilty and sentenced to jail. And at her sentencing, the victim's younger brother, 18-year-old, 18-year-old Brant Jean, stepped into the witness stand to deliver a victim impact statement. And he said to the police officer who'd shot dead his brother, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I was not going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. That's powerful, right? And what's mad is that young man, 18 years old, got absolutely hammered for saying that. He got hammered for, being, for making it political. He got hammered for being, people said he was pressured. People said he was excusing evil. 
look, I don't know him. I don't know the fullness of other than what I've just pretty much read and seen, but I do believe that young man knows the gospel truly. You see, God is perfectly just and he will have vengeance. Every sin will be paid for in full, either that by that person in hell or by Jesus on the cross. And so we remember when we are wronged, wherever on the spectrum, we remember the gospel. We're not judged. We have been forgiven and so we forgive. However hard, however hard the process is, and we have people here in this church who will help you walk through on that process. It's not a just a quick, I forgive and then done. It's a process that needs to really genuinely take go through and sometimes it can be quick and sometimes it can be long that's irrelevant it's the process of we forgive and we let God be God this doesn't excuse the person's actions towards us it doesn't release them from responsibility it's just the gospel should give me a profound sense of humility and compassion it kills our self-centeredness it kills our self-righteousness by the grace of God I am who I am and I am where I am And that's it. So we let God be God. And the third thing we do is we we bless and we will them good. Look at verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wow. Not only do we forgive, but we bless, we will them good. Christianity is so upside down, right? I, like, honestly, it's everything the world would do, and it's just the opposite. If you're unsure, probably just do the opposite of what the world would do. Like, we don't take vengeance. We forgive and we seek to bless, knowing that as we do, we are heaping burning coals on their heads. I mean, I'll be honest, I used to read those kind of things and think, good, some heaping coals at last. Get on it. <laughs> it's not it at all. It's a Jewish metaphor. That, it, what it means is that either in seeking and willing and blessing and bringing good to people, it will either wake them up from their sin because there's nothing kind of more that brings our enemies to repentance more than showing persistent Christian love to them even when they're treated as badly. It'll wake them up from their sin or it'll increase God's judgment on them. So we bless and we will them for good. And then final thing, just finish with this, is ultimately none of this is possible without a deep revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back to verse one again. The mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Paul says. So we remember Jesus, the one who had to sit, who had the right to sit in judgment on you. He came down to sit under judgment instead for you. Remember how he suffered silently for you and always returned bless, always returned blessing for cursing. You see, you don't learn to love by trying. You've thought about that. You don't learn to love by trying. Nobody learns to love that way. Babies don't learn to love by trying. They learn to love by experiencing love themselves. That's how we continue to learn to love, by experiencing it in Christ. Before forgiveness is something you do, it's someone you meet. And meeting the embodiment of God's mercy towards you will produce it to you in others. Tim Keller talking about this passage says, the greatness of God's mercy means there is no persecution so great that Paul makes an exception to this rule. No hurt so deep that Paul excuses us from living this way. So is it time to forgive? Perhaps to release some bitterness? to overcome evil by pursuing 
good. Perhaps it may be that none of that is relevant to you right now. Nothing specific, but it's just this sense of just this motivation to, to go again, to give myself again, to give of my time and my talent and my treasure again. I've just, just been a bit worn down by this and to go again now. How do I give myself to living a life, pouring myself out with gospel generosity, prioritizing the least, last, and the lost, or in, in my lives around others? Just, it's just a bit. It's a battlefront. We overcome. I just want to finish by telling a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. There's this king and a servant, and the servant owes this king 10,000 talents. 10,000 is the highest number in Greek, right? It's, it's a way of basically saying infinity. It's like this servant owns billions of pounds. No way can it be paid back. And the king comes to the servant and he says, pay me back. And the servant just looks at the king and says, I, I, I can't. Give me more time, I'll, I'll pay you next week. Imagine asking for more time to pay back billions. Like it's just never gonna happen, is it? It's like it's eternal debt. This is like a little bit of a pathetic scene in the courtroom. Give back the money. I can't, I'll pay it next week. It's kind of like, dude, you have nothing to offer. This debt is, you can't pay it this week. You are not gonna be able to pay it next week. You're not gonna pay it in a lifetime. A lifetime of lifetimes, you'll never pay this back. And the king has every right to stand and sit in judgment and throw him in jail. And with all eyes on the king, he says, no, I'm not gonna give you more time. And everyone's expecting to throw him in jail now. And instead he says, I absolve you of your debt entirely. You're free. Imagine what that would have been like for that person walking out of that courtroom, hit with the surreal realization that a whole new life has just opened up and started for his family. For the first time in a long time, he's totally free. Just changes everything. And he walks out of the court and starts walking down the, the street where he sees another servant who owes him some money. It's a few quid, literally two pounds. And he shouts at him, oi! You owe me two quid, pay it now. And the other servant's like, mate, I can't, I'm really sorry, I, I, I haven't got it, I've got, I'll, I'll have it next week, I'll give you some, I'm getting paid, I'll give you the money next week, I'll pay you then. And the servant looks at him and says, no, I want it now, if you can't pay now, I'm throwing you in jail. And he does. Imagine being there listening to this story, every single eye would roll. How can anyone forgiven of billions throw somebody in, the de in prison over two quid. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, the extent to which he has redeemed you, rectified your mistakes, paid your eternal debt, exchanged you so that you are his and he is yours. How can you not pour yourself out, all of you, every last part for the glory of God, for the sake of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a Father you are. What a God you are. What a King you are. Who has redeemed us. We were once objects of wrath, but now redeemed by the cross, we are sons and daughters forgiven and free. Oh, that we would increasingly be a community who displays your glory, who lives in view of your mercy,
has our lives shaped by the power of this gospel in every way. Holy Spirit, as you have spoken individually to some of us about releasing some stuff, about forgiving some people, about moving on, about overcoming, about dealing with issues, just ask now for your empowering grace to help us see through on those things that the stuff we've kind of silently whispered in our hearts in this moment, you'd empower us to deal with as we leave this place. That we might increasingly be individuals and a community who are shaped not by the world, but by the word and this incredible gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.